and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. podcast i'm chatting to weatu moore author of she would be king a beautiful sweeping novel that uses magical realism to reimagine the founding of liberia we discuss the importance of making your characters flawed how vital it is to get out and seek inspiration from other arts and thinking of writing as a craft or as an art and how to find the perfect balance of the two there were no bi girls like bessa the coastal village of La had only seen one woman as cursed, Omakamata, who they say is sitting in the corner of the moon after her hammock flung her there on her 193rd birthday. But even Omakamata's misfortune was nothing compared to that of Bessa, whose curse was not only her inability to die, but also the way death mocked her. La was hidden in the middle of the forest when the Vi people found it. There was evidence of earlier townsmen there, as ends of stoneware and crushed diamonds were found scattered on hilltops in the unexpected company of domestic cats. But when the Vi people arrived from war-ravaged Arabia through the Mandingo inland in the early 18th century, they found no inhabitants and decided to occupy the province with their spirits. Before Bessa was born, Omanyapu, old, bitter, widowed, was living only two houses down from Kati, Bessa's pregnant mother. Omanyapu had a pudgy orange cat whom she beat regularly to numb her loneliness. The village elders warned Omanyapu of what the spirits had told them about beating cats, but she disregarded them. She was powerless to her pride, and she hoped she would make the spirits angry enough to reunite her with her deceased love. Good afternoon, Wayetu. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Thank you so much for coming on the Riff Raff podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, yeah, I'm delighted to be chatting to you today. I thoroughly enjoyed your novel, She Would Be King. Um, please, can we kick off things with an introduction to your debut novel? Sure, sure. Um, she Would Be King explores the history of Liberia through three characters with supernatural abilities. Um, there's Bessa, she's immortal, she's indigenous to Liberia. And uh, June Day, he's a slave in Virginia. And during his first encounter with an overseer, he realizes that his skin is impervious to bullets and blades. And uh, he ends up on a boat back to Liberia and... Norman Arrigan, he is uh, the son of a Jamaican maroon and a British scholar, and he can make himself invisible. So he also ends up on a boat back to Liberia as the country is newly forming. And of course, colonialism and imperialism are still very present on the continent. And slavery is still going on for Black people in the rest of the Western world. So it's really how they make a sense of how they make sense of this new republic and how they make sense of themselves and their powers. Wonderful. Um, so so you, meant, you mentioned at the end of the book um, that She Would Be King, King is loosely based on a short chapter in Liberian history, but that it's obviously a, a fictional retelling of the country's founding. Yes. Um, please, can you talk a little bit about the early days of the book, how you kind of decided this was the story you wanted to tell and when you first started putting pen to paper? Sure. So when I was in... Um, when I was in college, undergrad, my everything that I would write, they were mostly essays about my cross-cultural identity as being an African immigrant in the U.S. and also someone with African-American sensibilities because of my upbringing in Texas. 
And a friend of mine at the time asked me if I'd ever considered writing African fiction. And I said, well, yeah, what I'm writing is African fiction. And he said, no, African fiction, like based on the continent. And well, yeah, I think I do have a couple of stories, but I decided that just as an exercise, I wanted to flesh out an aphorism that my mother and grandmother would tell me. They would always say little things like, um, don't dig too deep in the dirt or the devil will come pull you down or don't hum a cat's. Don't hum a cat because there was an old woman who beat her cat to death and the ghost of the cat jumped to the top of her roof and killed her. So don't hum a cats, right? <laughs> and so I said, you know what? I really want to, just as an exercise, what if I flesh out one of these stories and I decided to flesh out the old woman and the cat? I wanted to give the cat a personality and the old woman a name. And after this, the ghost of the cat jumps to the top of her roof and kills her, I remember showing it to my friend, and he said, oh, then what? And I thought, right, then what? And so then I began to explore what happens then on a day that is considered sacred by an indigenous group. And that's when my heroine vessel was born. And so I had an opportunity to craft the, the rules around her, her curse and the tradition that sort of kept her stifled throughout her life. And then, of course, after she gets exiled, I then wanted to tell the larger story of what was going on around Liberia at the time. And in order to tell that, I needed to leave Liberia and tell the story of those who, who uh, emigrated from America and the Caribbean in the early 19th century. And so that's how it, that's how it took its form. Uh, the the necessity of telling Bessa's story became the necessity of telling Liberia's story as a whole. And in order to tell that story, I needed to tell the story of all of the identities that comprise the Republic. What a love, like a juicy project. Like I suppose when after you've you kind of developed it from that tale, and then you realised that there was so much more that you could say, and then putting mm-hmm. that history element into it, it was yeah. did did you um like was it fun? Oh, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. There was there were some parts that were more fun than others. I should tell you that my first draft is so the, the story took about a year right a year to write. But it was a mess. My first draft was like over five hundred pages, probably about six hundred pages, and had extra characters that ended up getting cut out during the editing process. I put it away for about three or four years and picked it back up in 2013 or so to start editing again and I edited from 2013 to 2015 and it sold in December 2015 and it didn't come out in the U.S. until September 2018 (laughs) so I have been and it didn't come out until the U.K. until 2019 I, I have had a relationship with these characters and with this book for the past decade yeah wow it took a very long time to to really fine-tune their stories and make sure that they were aligned with the story that I wanted to tell of Liberia. Yeah. Um, and also I, and, and I like telling people who begin to write, who have just started to write or think about writing that there really is no prescription or, or there's no timeline for some of you. It'll take a year between when you write it and when it gets sold. And then for some of you, It'll be a decade-long journey, but 
everything is welcome when you're engaging with the craft in a meaningful way. And if you're committed to the story, then the end product will always be something that you're proud of, no matter how long it takes. That's such good advice. Such good advice. Because obviously when you're, there's, you feel, the, I mean, I'm writing a book currently and I feel the pressure, you know, to get it done as quickly as possible. And there's, there's obviously something in, in, in allowing the sort of it to come to you naturally, but there's also the, the right. pressure that you put on yourself as a writer to finish things faster. And because you're so impatient to get to that end goal when it's out in the yeah. world, hopefully, you know, you know, yeah. you never know. There must have been yeah. moments of frustration over that, oh, over the course. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I struggled with um, <clears throat> some characters, cutting some characters. I struggled in general with just some, um, the ideas for instance um there's a character in the book who believes that she is in love with her enslaver you know and then of course that she she gets brought down to reality in a very brutal way mm-hmm. but even in referencing when in when i was exploring her perspective even in referencing what they had as an affair or or from her perspective, because she did believe that she she loved him um, and was at that point indoctrinated with Christianity and knew that having a relationship with him with, outside of his marriage was inappropriate, but she deeply, she deeply felt for him. And so how do you explore that sort of dynamic in fiction when you know as this third person creator that She's actually, she's a slave, so she doesn't have a choice in whether or not she she loves him, even though she believes that she does. And then also being mindful of the sensitivities around that history and those relationships. So a lot of what I think I struggled with was the, the ideas that I, I wanted to bring forth in the story. Um, the relationships between people, not only man and woman, but of course, the, the, the motherhood dynamics that you saw, the friendships that you saw, the relationships between cultures. And I was trying to write outside of the binary, this idea that you have good or evil or black and white and, you know, native versus settler. How can I write nuanced and complex characters in histories? Um, and so that was that was the hardest that was the hardest part is. How do I tap into these characters in a way that does their story justice, but then also with both the reality of what was going on at the time, but then also the sensitivity of how we feel now about what was going on? Absolutely. I think you've done that incredibly well. Did you, do you think that um, the time in which it was in the draw, so to speak, you know, the sort of three to four period where you put it aside... What, was that kind of a period of time where you were spending a lot of time thinking about those kind of dynamics and did you did or did you just completely forget about it for those three to four years? No, I did, I never forgot about it, but I will say that I was I was I was distracted. I was um working on individual projects. I fell in love. And of course when I picked it back up it was around the time that I'd fallen out of love. And so as I grew, my character grew. Uh, my story grew as I learned more about 
myself and life and relationships, it, it strengthened the relationships that were presented in my book, for sure. That's so interesting because it's, see, you know, writing a book is obviously a huge journey, isn't it? And yeah. the idea that the person that started the book is different from the person that finished the book, I think, is, yeah. you know, and, and that kind of makes you think that it's going to take as long as it takes. <laughs> it'll, take as, it'll take as long as it takes and that's okay. And I mean, there are two schools of thought. There are those who, who think of writing as a craft and those who think of writing as an art. And those who think of writing as a craft will say, you know what, every day at 8 a.m., I'm going to sit in front of a computer and write for two hours, and I'm going to pay very careful attention to every sentence. And in about six to eight months' time, I'll have a manuscript. And they go about their relationship with writing in a very technical, methodical way. And it works for some people. And then there are those who go about writing as an art and say, you know, I want to be inspired. I want to live. I need my characters. I need to feel my characters. I can't just create for the sake of creating. Um, I want to create when I'm inspired. And I think obviously a happy marriage of both is the ideal with any artist, with any writer, but it's really rare to find. I, I find that with my friends and even with myself at any, on any given season, it's either one or the other. You know, I'm either writing based on my motivations and inspirations at the time, or I'm writing because I have to, <laughs> because I have a deadline, you know? And so I think I'm always going for and, and aiming for that, that medium and that marriage between the two where I have the discipline that's needed to produce, but thing that I enjoy and love and know is coming from an inspired place. Mm. And I suppose it's, 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 yeah, working out, as you say, the, the happy medium between the two, you know, like when, when you're not feeling inspired, you know, getting the words on the page is so important to, for progress. Yes. But then take, making the most of those moments when you do feel inspired to make mm -hmm. quicker progress. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> because, I mean, oh, progress for progress sake, some of the books you can tell, like it's a book with really beautiful sentences, but what is it saying? Like, what's the message? And I think those messages, they come from a place of inspiration. They come from a place of, like, deep knowing and feeling. And and the work shows. The work will reveal you. Yeah. And so that's why I think, I know I, I don't accomplish it all the time, but I at least try. And the way that I do stay inspired then, because the other side is, well, how do you get inspired? Is that you engage with other arts. You live your life, I think. Sometimes in writing, we, we sort of get used to this reclusive nature where we have to be with our work and we're sitting in these dark rooms in front of our computers and laptops and we're not experiencing life. We're not traveling. We're not having great conversations with people who aren't writers. <laughs> we, aren't, we, aren't, we aren't going and seeing the, the recent exhibit or the recent concert and watching the ways that people interact in those spaces. That's how you're inspired, watching a really great film and having a conversation about it after, not just sitting in your room and waiting for the inspiration to come. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's, that right. speaks to me and, uh, and the situation I'm in at the moment very, very well. I was, I was actually going to ask you about inspiration and what inspires you to write and what kind of compul like compels you to put pen to paper? Is it that engaging with the other types of arts? 
Yeah, I would say it's engaging with the other types of art. It's also deeply cultural. I've always wanted to be an, an artist, always wanted to be a storyteller because my mom and my grandmother were my storytellers, and I love that form. Right now, in this season of my life, it's literature, but I also started in theater. I also sing. And so I think storytelling in general is something that has come very natural, naturally to me, and I will continue to do. Um, and I'm inspired, I think, it's my personal, I understand that in many ways, my personal history has, has contributed to my zest for life. It's like when you come from a space where you, your life could have been totally different and mine could have been totally different. Um, my family immigrated to America when I was five because there was a war in my home country, my life could have gone in a number of different directions. And so coming from that space, historically and familiarly, I, there was just no option for me to, to, to squander my time or my opportunities. I always wanted to do the most of life. I always wanted to make the most of every second and every moment that I had. I always wanted to create at capacity um, because I have always lived with the the reality that my life could be very different, and so I think that's my inspiration comes from there. So all of all of the main characters in your novel are essentially kind of outsiders or outcasts, or you know people sort of see them. They've got these phenomenal powers of, as you said before, kind of super strength or you know um, immortality and things like that. They're sort of seen their gifts are kind of seen as cursed curses and then in, that means that they are often cast out of their villages or out of society and I, I wondered what interested you about writing from uh, writing about outsiders because you know it's, it's, it's quite a prevalent thing in literature and I wondered what mm -hmm. yeah why what, what compelled you to write about those characters and why do you think these kind of outsiders stories are so interesting to writers and readers well I think going back to the personal history um I, I always considered myself a bit of an, an outsider, you know, I think as an immigrant, as a black immigrant in America, you have no, no choice but to view yourself as that. Um, and so surely I had that in common with the characters, but, but then also I've always been a fan of speculative fiction and fantasy and magical realism and superhero flicks. And what I found that all of those had in common were these characters who uh, who at some point in their lives had felt withdrawn or ostracized. And it was that ostracism that inspired them in many ways to, to help others and to make sure that other people did not feel the levels of loneliness that they did. And so <clears throat> I would say I was, I, I'm influenced by my personal experience, but I'm also influenced as a patron <clears throat> of the genre and as someone who's been a patron of the genre for my entire life, and seeing these examples, those are my influences as well. What, what's, what, do you have any advice for people that are currently writing from the point of view, from that kind of point of view of the outsider? I would say they need weaknesses, right? Because we, we get, when you think of like a superhero, or then they become unhuman, but they're still human. So... They need, they need to be flawed in 
in different ways. And so I would say make sure that all your characters, even the good ones, especially the good ones, have flaws. It was, I, I, I'm a massive fan of superhero stuff. <laughs> and as I was reading it, I was thinking, wow, like, you know, what fun it must have been to, to come up with their, you know, their, their powers, basically. And mm-hmm. yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your, how you came up with your characters and, um, and, and how, you, how you gave them the powers that you've given them. How did you choose yeah. their abilities? <laughs> Bessa was easy. I mean, I knew that this, this girl who, was cur- who would end up being cursed, the child who would end up being cursed, was going to be a woman. Um, I think Liberia's story is very feminine, and so I wanted it to be a woman. And, and she was made immortal because... I was, I've always thought about these groups and these countries that have been formed on the continent of Africa, and none of them had the say of indigenous groups. Every single country that was formed on the continent was formed externally. You know, whether it's like, with the, with the exception maybe of Ethiopia, but even those had some sort of colonial interference and imperial interference with, with, with Italy. And so all of the countries were carved up in Belgium and even Liberia. It was a plot, plot of land that was bought by Americans and then later expanded. And so Bessa being native to Liberia, her immortality represents these groups who were there before these lines, before these countries were designated and who will be there after. Um, June Day's power really pays homage to the strength and resilience of African Americans. Mm-hmm. Like I re- realized that as a black immigrant, as a black body in America, as a black body in this world, there are certain privileges that I have that were gained and fought for by African Americans and the African American struggle. And their example has been a precedent to so many different social movements. And in the way that I move and the way that I think and act about black liberation and black struggles around the world, I I look to the example of African Americans first. And then Norman Aragon, I really wanted to um, give an example or explore successful movements of revolts among slaves. And the Maroons, of course, they were able to successfully fight off their British slave masters in two wars. They ran up the mountains. And even though most of the Caribbean population in Liberia is from Barbados, it was realistic to tell Norman Aragon's story as he was on a ship on his way to Sierra Leone because as part of these wars, the British actually ended up sending a lot of Maroons back to Sierra Leone, which is the, which, which is, um, the UK's iteration of Liberia. <laughs> you know, the Sierra Leone looked for freed slaves, um, from Britain to move to West Africa. And so because those stories are parallel, I did want to tell, I, I did want to feature Norman Aragon, but he, his, his story exists in there primarily because of a, a desire to explore a successful res- revolt. It's, it's so interesting how to hear how authors choose their characters to explore the themes that they they want to explore, and it's, it, it's so well done here. Do you, 
like how um how did they all come but did all of those was the process of choosing them really simple you said choosing Bessa was simple but did you choosing Bessa was simple choosing June Day was simple as well because I did know that I wanted like some massive and superhero um man who was able to to champion his slavers Norman Aragon's character, Norman Aragon actually used to be an old man. He was an old man and he traveled with an alien. <laughs> Talking about those 600 pages and the characters that needed to get cut. And so they were a team, they were a duo. Norman Aragon was someone who just sort of knew everything, was able to tap into this omniscience, whereas the, the short man who who's called the beggar who he used to travel with um could attract metal and so that's how they were able to know where all the slavers were when they got to the continent and the shorter man pulled the metals to him but then it ended up seeming too much like x-men yeah magneto <laughs> yes exactly and i was just like yeah no this has to take a different form and so the other form of Norman Aragon was um, actually a child. Um, and then, you know, shortly after his, what happens to his parents happens, he ends up on the boat. So it's Norman, June Day, and, and Vesa, but, but Norman is the youngest. And then I settled on him being, him being um, older and able to, to, to disappear. I mean, it, having this conversation, it sounds, you know, referencing superheroes, referencing X-Men and stuff, it makes it sound like it's this, like a sort of superhero book, which <laughs> even though there's obviously a lot of lot of sort of powers going on, that it's so, it's woven through the text so, so well, like, you know, it's, and it's exploring these themes so, so well that it's, there's none of the kind of, there's none of the sense of sensationalism of normal superhero. <laughs> mm-hmm. How did you find that balance of, you know, you're telling such a, you know, a story of such suffering and, and this history. And, you know, how did you balance the kind of magical realism elements and this kind of superhero kind of thing with the rest of the story to make sure it wasn't too flashy? So I, um, this, this question, I answer this question in the same way, because I, I, when my, when I was growing up, I didn't hear stories that didn't include people flying and casting spells and shape-shifting, right? That's just what I understood as a shape of story. So I wouldn't necessarily say that, I wouldn't say at all that I was thoughtful about my intentions of writing in this genre. This genre is actually the most organic to me. The thought went into how their powers are going to be used to to resist colonialism and slavery, right? Um, but them having the powers was not something that had that I put a lot of, of, of thought into because every story that I think I've written had some element of, of fantasy and magic, as we call it in the West, but in Liberia, it's just a story. Mm. I yeah. think that kind of, that, that nat- how naturally that comes to you really comes across in the book. You know, that kind of, because it, it does, it does, you know, you don't think, oh, wow, suddenly this person's got super strength. You're, it, it is part of, you know, it's, 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 it's part of the story you're telling, which completely matches up with what you just said. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, so 
an element of the book that really struck me was your exploration of the cruel treatment of women, uh, obviously, and the high moral code placed on them that leads them to being judged and mistreated, and whether that was in slavery or within the kind of confines of society. Um, can you expand a little on your exploration of this in the book? Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that it's a, I, I would say it's a, it's a story. It was like someone who interviewed me before was talking about the story of the time. <clears throat> and I was, and I said, <clears throat> when had women not been struggling for liberation? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's, <clears throat> I mean, obviously it's better now than it was then, whenever then is, but it's, we've, we've always sort of been in that, in that struggle and in that fight for liberation and a voice. And so, um, the feminine aspects of the book and the sexist and misogynistic and patriarchal undertone of the book, um, sort of needed to be included and needed to be included in at the level that it was, as painful as it was to write, because if we're going through what we're going through now as women, and this is, we're, you know, all progressives, and it's 2019, you can only imagine what the women back then were going through, especially those who were enslaved, right? And so I think telling those stories, telling that story, no matter how difficult it, it was and how difficult it felt, um, and how emotional it made me <clears throat> was the right thing to do because I think it it feels better to sort of avoid or gloss over some of the truths of our histories, right? And that's how people are able to absolve themselves from guilt <clears throat> is by neglecting the reality of some of what was going on. And I think coming face-to-face -face with those truths that's going to be the catalyst for change, right? Not avoiding what was actually happening. So I knew that if I was going to tell the story and if I considered the story feminine and if I was delving into women's relationships with each other and women as, as mothers and women as lovers, then in order for those relationships to be crystallized, I had to give a full view of the context that they existed in. And those were hyper-patriarchal, hyper-masculine contexts all around. Yeah, and it was, uh, the the power of women also comes through a lot, you know, mm -hmm. like which, which is a very powerful part of the book. Um, one, another thing that I particularly admire about your writing, um, among, you know, amongst all of it, <laughs> is your descriptions of kind of people's appearances. And I know that's like, it seems like a sort of relatively small part of, you know, what you created, but you use such lovely language to summon sort of images for the reader, you know, it feel, I felt like I, you know, could see the characters so clearly. Um, so it's an element that a lot of people struggle with as, um, you know, writing descriptions of people, um, because it can often result in, you know, using hackneyed phrases and descriptions to sort of, that just sort of seem like they've been used time and time again. Um, so what's, what's your opinion on the importance of physical descriptions in literature? And how did you approach writing those parts of your book? Hmm. Um, yeah, physical descriptions are very important. <clears throat> I, I think I am more obsessed with 
<clears throat> descriptions of a scene and place than I am descriptions of, of people. And I mean, at, a, at the very basic level, I just think of senses. You know, what does this person not only look like, but what does this the room smell like? What does what does a person feel like? What are how do what's the you know how would they be how would they feel under my skin? Um, so at the basic level, focusing on senses because that's really the 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 way I think to make readers or to entice readers into a more immersive experience is if you tap into what it is that they can can themselves feel or associate with. Um, and and so yes, I think I think those descriptions are important. I am I am someone who, as I said, am am more drawn to descriptions of of places than I am people. Um, but but both are are fun to write and also revealing and then also also pretty hard. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, wait, how 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 will someone know this reference? And and then sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes you just write for yourself and it doesn't you're not so pressured about people reading books where someone makes a comparison that I'm not familiar with and I have to do the work and go research and see, oh, what does this type of tree or leaf look like and why do they compare the person's tie to it, you know? Um, so I enjoy being stumped and surprised um, when it comes to descriptors. Yeah. Um, I love, like, the idea of writing from the senses is something that comes up quite a lot with authors and, it, and it, you know, it's, it's such, a, such a simple thing, as you say, but it does create that kind of visceral experience of what, you know, it puts you, it puts you right in the shoes of your characters. Um, so, yeah. so when you, so how does that work in practice? You know, were you, as you were writing, you know, were you ticking off kind of like sight, smell? Were you, were you doing that kind of no. thing? Or was it just, you know, kind of trying to, you know, being that thorough? <laughs> no. no, those checks happened during my edits where I was really, I was invested in whether or not I could see the character or the place. But first draft, first draft, I think it was, it was more, it was more basic. It was more fundamental in terms of, of how a person looked, but it still had, I hope it had this, the, the kind of poetry that, um, that, that I was, that I was raised hearing when I was introduced to story, like comparing a person to a person's skin to a place as opposed to a thing. You know what I mean? That sort of musicality. And so I attempted that in my first draft and then it wasn't until I began to edit that I, that I found use of, um, found use of the senses and started thinking of, okay, well, what is, what is this part missing? What can I add here and here? Yeah. How many edits do you think the book went through? Oh gosh. Um, maybe eight. Yeah. About eight. Cool. Over the course of a decade, you know, I, I thought there might be a lot more, but I suppose yeah. <laughs> eight's a lucky number anyway. In a, yeah, in eight Asian is country. my favorite number. <laughs> Mine too. Really? <laughs> it, yeah. And, really. And also, interestingly, I'm on num question number eight as we okay. speak. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so, yeah, so one of your characters as well kind of becomes the voice of the wind. You know, you, t you tell her story and then she becomes the voice of the wind. It's kind of this omnipresent voice 
observing and encouraging the others, the other characters in their pursuits. And can you talk a little bit about um, your intentions with with this tool? Yeah. So initially, the book was actually third person, and in a later edit, I was talking to a publisher, and we realized that, or I realized that I wanted to tell the story. Um, I wanted the story to be told by an ancestor, like staying true to the to the Vi storytelling form where they would say, oh, the Omas will say, the Omas say, that's very Vi. And um, so I wanted the story to be told by an ancestor. I wanted the story to be told by a Black woman and someone who could relate to the heroine. And with Bessa, yeah, I even considered making it first-person Bessa. But I thought, no, that isn't that wouldn't work. And so because this particular character becomes a ghost, it seemed only natural to then make her a part of this larger chorus of ancestors. Um, and so that's how that came about. Did you find that quite difficult to weave in or was it just did it, did it all just kind of was that kind of something that came within the edit or was it something that you planned from the beginning? It came in the, it came within the edits. Yeah. Yeah. That's often where the magic happens. Yeah. Yeah, it came within the edits. Editing is very important. Like, that is where a lot of the magic happens, which is why I also tell a lot of people, um, my mentors, to just be open to edits. You'd be surprised the amount of people who are resistant to their work changing. And it's like, well, no, because if you don't want it to change, then just keep it on your desktop and you go back every few years and read it. But if you want to introduce it to an audience, be open to criticism from that audience. And that doesn't mean that you have to apply everyone's note, but you should at least consider it. And so I think edits, the, the editing rounds are, are truly, truly important. And having readers is important as well. People who you trust, people who you consider um, knowing your work, knowing what you're trying to do, I think those are all very important. Yeah, because even if you, even if someone makes a comment that you don't necessarily agree with, it can open up another idea that, you know, that you never expected or like, you know, if they're seeing it from a certain perspective, it can make you see it from a different perspective. And it's, yeah, it's such a, it's such valuable, such a valuable part of the process and also a really rewarding part of the process, I think, when you get to that, because it's, it's, it's your chance to kind of start speaking about your book and then, and putting your intentions for your project into words which you know, when you're battling through the first draft, can often be, you know, you don't you don't do that. I remember being quite shocked to sort of have conversations about my book because it, it made me realise how mu- how much more detailed my intentions were for the book that I was yeah. writing. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Did you were you always kind of on board with the editing, the, the getting those opinions of people that you trusted, or was it something was getting that kind of feedback initially quite difficult? No, I was always on board. Yeah. I mean, I, I am someone who, I'm very practical, and I also know whose opinions to trust. Mm-hmm. I think I've always been instinctive in that way. You can tell, or I can tell, when um, someone's criticism comes from a place of sensitivity or malice. Um, and so I, I've always been open to it, but I'm also, I think, rather selective in who who it is that I am giving that responsibility to because it is a huge responsibility. Absolutely, absolutely. And like, yeah. you know, and, and it can really muddy the waters if you don't, if you give it to someone and 
you know, they, and they've got bad intentions for it, or there's, or they don't understand it, or you know, like it's, yeah. you've got to be very selective about yeah, who you exactly. bring, yeah, to your project. One thing, one thing that's, that's like super interesting to our listeners is also the journey, your journey to publication. Um, how how did getting published happen for you? Did you go the sort of traditional route of finding an agent and yes, yeah, yes, I, I did, I did. Um, so my agent before the agent that I have now I was talking to another agent who actually wanted me to write my memoir first because there's this idea that you know when you have a very specific identity as an immigrant person or minority person in the United States, and that's something that's more marketable. And so it was re- really wanted me to write my immigrant story first. And I was like, eh, I really, I have this novel that I would actually want to be my introduction. So we were at odds. We parted ways. And then I reached out to, you know, were there are like these writing workshops here where you can meet agents and editors. And I'd been to one and at the workshop, um, I met a writer and an agent and the writer and I became friends. And he, when the, the whole thing happened with the first agent, he said, you know, why don't you reach out to this agent? She remembers you and she likes your stuff. And I did, I reached out to her and she wanted to read more and she was actually the first one who believed in the story because she, she knew that there was something there. She recognized that it needed editing and needed to be cut, but she knew that there was something there and never gave up on it. And so I have a sense of loyalty toward that. So she worked with me over the years. 2015, when she started to pitch it, we were getting a lot of no's because there weren't strong comps for magical realism in adult literary fiction um is more like a YA space at the time that year and then of course so it comes out in 2018 and of course 2018 was when Black Panther came out and so it was largely popular but it just goes to show also how the publishing is in waves and it just so happens that the year it sold was not the year that any publisher could see or have foresight that three years down the line it would be very popular because that's just the kind of work that was being produced across mediums, not only literature, but then film and even in music and, and, and to some extent. And so, so yeah, so my first agent had the foresight. Grey Wolf, they're an independent publisher in the U.S. They're the ones who said yes to my book first and it ended up working out. Amazing. And how, how do you find that? Well, I mean, I suppose you, if you haven't had any experience of working with a major publisher, it's difficult to talk about your experience of working with an independent publisher, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's all been really positive. Yes. It's all been very positive. You can tell that they, they read the book mm. and that makes a difference because there are a lot of people who, you know, I have friends and peers who will say that at larger houses, sometimes there are people who don't read the books. So that's mind boggling, isn't it? That a publisher yeah. house could not read the book that they're publishing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I guess in their defense, you'll have one person doing publicity for 50 books a season. And sometimes that's very difficult to keep up with. So they ask for key points that they can market. And, and so that's the benefit of some of the smaller houses. And they, they, I mean, Grey Wolf publishes maybe 30 books a year. Um, 
And and that's just very rare. And so because of that, you have more of a chance of getting read and the people who are working on your book being invested in it because they have a relationship with it. Sounds like a nice nurturing environment to have a mm-hmm. debut novel put out into the world. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm lucky, or I was lucky. Good. I'm, I'm grateful. And, and are, you, are you working on your second book now? I am. So my memoir is coming out next June in about a year. Um, okay. And that is about, I guess, my cross-cultural identity, also my family's immigration. Um, and then I am working on another novel now as well. I understand you're, um, you know, you teach as well, don't you? You're a busy, a busy, very busy woman. <laughs> yes, I do. So I am, I teach at a low-res MFA program called Randolph College, and it's located in Virginia. And so we go 10 days in the summer and 10 days in the winter, and then we, we mentor students throughout the year. And... Um, I also recently was appointed the Distinguished Visiting Writer at Syracuse University for the fall. And so those will be my two teaching jobs this fall. Wonderful. <laughs> so those both sound like lovely jobs as well. And Yeah. So it, obviously it kind, of ta- it kind of buys into what you said earlier about, you know, wanting to create a capacity, you know. Obviously you're, you, know, you, don't, you don't mess around. You get down to business and get the, get the job done. What advice do you have for writers that are struggling to find the time to work on their projects? I think you can find the time. You can find the time. That I think that's that's the that's that's that is the bottom line. Unless you are uh, in a PhD program, you have four children, you you know have to work around the clock in order to provide for your family, and you literally don't. You barely have time to sleep. You have time. I think writing writing is a privilege. Reading is a privilege. Being invested in literature in any way is is a privilege because it takes time to read in the same way that it takes time to write. And I think that if you can go out for a walk in the park and meet up for a friend for a dinner or coffee, then you can make time even if it's 30 minutes a day to to write. I think you can make time. Yeah. And often it seems that 30 minutes a day is enough for a lot of the authors that come through the riffraff, you know, they, that's, that's what they've done every day. And eventually yeah. they'll get there, yeah. yeah. 30 minutes, what is 30 minutes? I mean, nowadays people spend an hour a day on social media. Yeah, or like three watching Netflix, so. Yes, exactly, <laughs> what is 30 minutes? You can make time. Yeah, you can make time. No excuses, yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> and well, thank you so much for speaking to us, especially when you're, you sound so poorly. So I really am oh, super grateful. And um, thank yeah, you. best of luck thank with everything. Look, I look forward to the one. Just a quick note from me. In the name of finishing my book, I'm taking the podcast down to one episode a month for the foreseeable. It's uh, time to get my head down on my book and walk the walk as well as talking the talk. So yeah, don't worry, you'll still be getting a monthly episode on the second Monday of the month. The next episode is coming on the 8th of July with Catherine Kerwin, author of The Darkest Truth. Cheers for understanding and hope you all have fab weeks.